Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. A few days ago, Tim Flannery, scientist, author and the chief counsellor at Australia's Climate Council, was in New Zealand to discuss his latest book, Atmosphere of Hope. I travelled all the way to gorgeous Wanaka to meet him at the Aspiring Conversations Festival and I first asked him what's changed since he wrote The Weathermakers a decade ago. Ten years ago, we were at the beginning or partway through, actually, um, a period where we were following the worst-case emission scenario trajectory. So that was the worst possible outcome people could imagine at the time. And we followed that for uh, nearly a decade. And just now we're starting to come out of that period, I think. We've had emissions flatlined for a couple of years, so there's the first glimmer of hope that we may be getting away from that worst-case scenario. And, of course, in between, we've had one failed attempt at making a global agreement and one successful attempt. So the Paris meeting was a great success. We finally have a global agreement on how to deal with climate change. So perhaps uh, we're beginning to see the glimmerings of, of hope now that we couldn't see 10 years ago. Hence the completely different narrative of an atmosphere of hope. Well, that's right, yeah. But we have to contextualise that in this decade of lost opportunity that we've just passed through, which will have consequences for many, many years. Talk me through, though, because in, in your latest book you do take quite an optimistic approach. Well, optimistic is perhaps saying too much, but you are looking at an outcome that we can turn this around. There is um, a significant amount of damage already done to the climate system, and uh, there's a lot more which we've committed to because the emissions in the atmosphere take time to accumulate the ultimate heat load they can actually maintain. We're in a situation where we've done quite a lot of damage, but I do see hope that we won't go through that worst-case scenario of four degrees plus warming by the end of the century, which would be a catastrophe. The Paris Agreement with the two-degree goal, or even better, 1.5 degree, do you see that as achievable? There's enough greenhouse gas in the atmosphere to take us pretty much all the way to one and a half degrees of warming by 2050. We're not going to stop using fossil fuels overnight, so there will be additional greenhouse gases put into the atmosphere. If we're to achieve one and a half degrees, the only realistic option is to slam on the brakes as hard as possible with emissions, but also work on technologies that can get some CO2 out of the atmosphere at scale. And um, that really is what the, my book is about. That's where the key message of hope lies, I think. And the reason I find it so hopeful is that options to get CO2 out of the atmosphere at scale are a tool that we haven't really thought about yet. And I think it is a very realistic option. Perhaps with the exception of some of the large-scale geoengineering suggestions there, I mean, they would have done that, stripping CO2 out of the atmosphere, but that's not what you talk about. 
Well, you know, if you look at the projections of the IPCC and so forth, they assume this technology that's called BECS, you know, biological capture and storage, um, which is, is very ill-fleshed out in all of these things. Um, but, you know, I, my insights into this really have come through sitting on the Virgin Earth Challenge panel where we've seen 11,000 entries now come in with a whole series of innovative technologies which are are framed around the idea of getting large volumes of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So and there's a huge variety of options out there. I mean, they range from, uh, you know, uh, chilling air over the Antarctic and, and storing CO2 as, as dry ice in the Arctic ice cap uh, through to making plastics from CO2, through to massive tree planting programs, through to biochar, seaweed farming, the use of silicate rocks, carbon-negative concretes. It, the list just goes on and on. It's, it's a fascinating basket of technology. But the big question really is at what scale can any of these operate? And many of them, in fact all of them, are at a very rudimentary scale at the moment. Many of them still laboratory studies, um, some of them desktop studies. Uh, we've got virtually no industries which are operating at any scale yet in that area. And that's what we need to build in the next 20 to 30 years if we are to have any hope at all of pulling back down towards one and a half degrees. You mentioned trees, tree planting. That would seem probably still the best technology, if I can call photosynthesis a technology, to strip CO2 from the atmosphere. How big a factor could that be in the future? I think we can make some gains with tree planting, but the scale of the problem is an issue. You know, at the moment we are still putting up around 50 gigatons of CO2 equivalent greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Um, and if you think about what it might take using tree planting to withdraw one-tenth of that, so five gigatons, uh, you'd need to plant an area larger than Australia in trees and maintain tree growth for 50 years. And um, you know, if you did that, you'd change Earth's albedo because all those bright surfaces would change to a dark forest canopy and so the heating would actually accelerate. Um, so, you know, I guess my take on that is that, you know, five gigatons of CO2 or CO2 equivalent is, is a, a, a volume of greenhouse gas that is of planetary significance. You know, so we're dealing here with very, very, very large volumes. So tree planting, I think, will contribute something, but by no means the whole solution. All those different techniques or approaches that in your book you call them the third-way technologies, they all borrow from nature to some degree. So there's photosynthesis, which is tree planting or um, farming seaweeds. There's, uh, you mentioned the, um, the geological contribution, that we could use natural weathering and just speed it up in some way. Let's just pick one. Let's pick the, the seaweed farms or kelp farms. Can you give me an idea of how something like this could work and be scaled up? Sure. Look, the reason seaweed farms are of particular interest or kelp farms are of particular interest is the rapid growth rate for macroalgae in the kelps and seaweeds. And, you know, they grow 30 to 60 times faster than land-based plants. Some of the kelps grow up to a metre a day in the right environment. Um, and they, they act in multiple ways to benefit the environment. They draw CO2 out of the seawater and therefore buffer the seawater against ocean acidification. That provides a fantastic environment for fish growth or shellfish growth, uh, prawns, anything that needs shells will grow very well under those conditions. So you can use seaweed farms as a means of generating uh, lots of high-quality protein for people as well. So there's a lot going for seaweed farms. The big difficulty is the scale at which they've got to operate. You know, if you were to be able to draw down all of current emissions, so all 50 gigatons or so of, of current emissions, you'd need to cover about 9% of the world's oceans in seaweed farms. It doesn't sound like a big figure, but I did the calculation on it. It's a, an area about four and a half times the size of Australia. It's quite a large area. So, uh, 
you know, these we're in the very earliest days of all of this. We really are. Um, and th- just think about seaweed farms. Yes, we know how to grow them. There's even people with square kilometre arrays floating in mid-ocean now, prototypes, you know, to grow this sort of stuff. But the big question is, what do we do with all that seaweed? You know, do we put it into biodigesters and generate electricity? If so, how do we use the electricity and get it off? How do we get the carbon that's left over from the biogeneration to sink or be sequestered somewhere? I mean, you're dealing with vast, vast volumes of biomass production here. And uh, those questions are still very open. So although it's a promising avenue to draw down large volumes of CO2, we have to recognise we're at the very earliest infant stages of that process. Can you see any links with food production? If seaweed obviously comes to mind, there is a market for it. There might be a growing market, so it could make commercial sense to produce it as a food but probably not in those quantities that we need to produce it for climate change. Well, there's already about 500 kilometres of seaweed farms off the coast of China. Seaweed's an important food uh, there. Um, And I guess you could expand on that a bit. But, you know, the question then remains of where does all that carbon get sequestered? How do we stop it getting back into the atmosphere? So and, and that's, the, that's the sort of thinking we need to develop. Where do we put the CO2? So one option is, you know, if you use biodigesters and generated electricity, um, you could pump the CO2 down into the uh, ocean depths and, and um, sequester it in sediments, say, three kilometres down in the ocean. Uh, and down there, the column of water above it would, would keep it in a, a liquid form. It wouldn't escape, not like on land with carbon sequestration, CCS. Uh, and it would eventually solidify. Now, that's one option. But again, this is a desktop study. We don't know the details of this, whether it would have adverse impacts on the ocean environment or not. Um, so, as I said, we're just at the beginning. These, there wasn't a name for this basket of technologies before I wrote the book, you know. Um, but there was vague arm-waving at, at Beck's, you know, but nothing else. And we have to start fleshing this out. It'll be a multi-billion, if not trillion-dollar journey that we're going to go on. Uh, it'll be multi-decadal, and it'll be utterly transformative of our economy. It will change almost everything, I think, about our economy. All the big opportunities uh, that I can see are going to be in this area and IT and conventional clean tech, but it'll be a big expansion of activity. Will it require some kickstart, though, given that there isn't an obvious market for what the products are? How can you get something like this going well, on the scales needed? Well, that's the, the great question. I mean, there are markets there, but it's, it's a long way from having a, a market and a laboratory experiment. There's a long journey in between, you know. That's where we need the money, and we will need billions and billions of innovation investment, whether it's from the private sector or from government. We'll probably need some economic instruments to to hasten development of some uh, aspects, such as a carbon tax, a global carbon tax. And if I could say that the opportunities are very varied. If you take, for example, the opportunity to make carbon fibre from atmospheric CO2, that's a self-starting project. Carbon fibre is in great demand. You can make it more cheaply using atmospheric CO2 than conventional production processes. It'll start displacing aluminium and steel out of manufacturing. Huge benefits in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, And that'll probably be funded by the private sector. But things like storing CO2 in the Antarctic ice cap, if you wanted to do that seriously, you're going to need some sort of public funding or government funding for that sort of thing. Because there's no product that comes out of the end except a better climate. Will some of that be driven by the Paris Agreement? The Paris Agreement at the moment is a very broad level, very high-level agreement, um, and we need to see where that goes in terms of individual country commitments, really, um, before we can know what impacts it'll have on these third-way technologies. Um, I hope that, that it does head in that direction. I hope we can get a global carbon tax and that carbon tax can be used to fund some of these larger initiatives. But that's yet to be seen. So carbon tax, would you see that as a 
essential requirement for that kick-starting of those processes? For some of the options, yes. So uh, we are sequestering CO2 and there's no obvious benefit beyond a better climate. You need uh, some sort of way to pay for that. So whether it's using the weathering of silicate rocks, storing CO2 in the Antarctic ice cap or, or even you know, post-seaweed farming in, in the bottom of the ocean, and there's no obvious product. So for those, yes, you do need a carbon tax or some income stream. Let me bring you back again to the weathermakers 10 years ago. What has changed, not so much in the technologies and what we could be doing, but in, in people's perception, in people's thinking? I think there's been a revolution. I remember when I wrote The Weathermakers, there was a small group of people who were desperately anxious about this issue, but we seem to be able to get very little cut through to the public. I saw all of that change, actually, in about 2007 with, with uh, Al Gore's and Inconvenient Truth and, and the Weathermakers and just the world changed. I was travelling the world then talking about climate and uh, I remember going to a remote region in northern Kenya. People were talking about the climate. I went to uh, Kalimantan. People were talking about the way the climate was changing. It, it happened over about eight months and it was, it was very interesting as a sort of social phenomenon to see people right around the world finally understand that these little individual observations they'd had about changing weather in their location was part of a big global picture. Is it possibly exactly that, that we had to wait until people feel it in their own place? I think many people had seen the change already, um, and what, what they needed was a sense that this wasn't just a local or short-term phenomenon, this was part of a global phenomenon. People around the world were noticing similar changes. And that, that was the moment, I think, of recognition and, and, and awakening that was really important. So to get to the goal, the third way technology, stripping CO2 from the atmosphere, is the promising future, but we still need to mitigate, simply reduce the emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere now. What do you think are the most promising areas there? Well, that clearly is the urgent task now. You know, we're, emissions have stalled, but we need to start reducing them very fast. And I think we have to start with the stationary uh, energy sector. Um, the Smith School at Oxford University produced a brilliant paper a year or so ago saying that you know if we could close down 300 of the world's oldest and most polluting coal-fired power plants, 1,000 megawatt power plants, uh, we'd have a good chance of staying below 2 degrees. Um, and, and so that is an urgent issue. Just closing down old coal globally is really, really important. Beyond that, you know, that when you get into the transport sector... That's still at a very early stage. You know, Tesla, for all its brilliance and promise, still only produces about 50,000 cars a year. You know, there's 90 million new vehicles go on the road every year. Right? So we've got a long way to go in that transport sector, but we need to boost that and build that as quickly as we feasibly can. Public transport, of course, and all the other electrified forms of transport to displace cars would also be hugely important. Uh, we know how to deal with, with this issue, incidentally, with aviation. People are already flying aircraft using biofuels. We just need the right mechanism to allow that to become widespread. Um, and shipping as well. We know how to do shipping using uh, compressed natural gas, you know, but um, rather than bunker fuel that's being used. And, again, that would just save a lot of greenhouse gases. So we know the path forward. What we need now is the will to implement the real cutting regulations and policies that will deliver the goal. And that was Tim Flannery from Australia's Climate Council, whose latest book, Atmosphere of Hope, is published by Text Publishing. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Mate wa. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.